0: As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward
1: every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me. Us. We want to talk right down to earth. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Today I'm super excited to be in conversation with an individual whose work I have followed for quite some time and has significantly shaped the trajectory of my own politics. A committed and principled Pan-Africanist. Kambale Musavoli thank you and welcome to The Malcolm Effect. How are you?
0: I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay and I'm glad to be in conversation and I'm definitely looking forward to what we will be sharing on this uh, podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I think OKAY, given um, what's happening in the world today, OKAY is the right term and the appropriate term to use. For those who are politically engaged and politically active, in such a time of death and destruction around the world, we see what's happening in Palestine and several parts of the world. An often comment I read, it says do not forget about Congo and whilst I've tried to amplify the voices of those who know what's going on, a lot of the time it's quite difficult to maybe perhaps filter through what is actually happening, what are the causes, where do you start telling the story from and how do you write the history of the Congo in relation to what is happening today. So we're going to go to more specifics but I guess as a broad first question, what is happening in Congo today?
0: There is a genocide happening in the Congo. There is a silent genocide. There is a hidden genocide. As you pointed, many people around the world do not know that there is a genocide taking place in the Congo. But what they fail to realize is that Congo is much closer to them than they will ever know. Congo has given to the world so much from its land, from its resources, and even from its people through um, uh, referencing slavery. And it continues still today. But modern-day Congo, uh, since 96, has seen the loss of over 6 million lives. Some will say 10 million. And I usually argue, just as it was with King Leopold in the early 1900s, it's the same with Congo today, that millions have died. And we will never know how many millions have died, unfortunately, all to get access to resources for modern-day technology, your cell phone, your laptops, your electric vehicles, and so on. That's a submission um, to kind of connect to why people are saying, do not forget the Congo, because the people of the Congo are still suffering. And in the process of them suffering, they are also organizing to liberate themselves from um, a century-old challenge where they are not able to determine their affairs and they believe that they will and they continue to organize for that.
1: Thank you so much and I want to go into the specifics later on about what people are doing in terms of their liberation and also how perhaps those of us in the diaspora can support but given this current moment of this genocide and the millions of lives displaced and millions will be killed and have been killed what is the reason? Some of us are reading that it's about cobalt. Some of us are reading that it's about US imperialism. Some of us are reading it's about a proxy war between China and other forces. And some of us are reading about Kagame has a role to play. So when we pull out all these threads, what is their connection to what is happening today? All
0: these threads are true. All of them are happening at the same time. And some. that's why also sometimes people have uh, challenges to understand what is happening because you you lay out quite a few threads of uh, the challenge of the Congo. But the, the way to simplify it is to understand that Congo has two challenges. Right? It has internal challenges and it also has external challenges. And all those threads that you have listed fall in these challenges. You see, with uh, the fight against apartheid, right, it was easier to understand apartheid. You know, white South African minority oppressing the blacks. We need to end apartheid. It wasn't just a normal oppression. I mean, there were killings, imprisonment, torture, extreme uh, oppression. So when, um, during the anti-apartheid movement, to explain people the situation in South Africa, it was very easy. Let's boycott Mm -hmm. any working with apartheid. Let's support the people. Now, for the Congo, I will lay out a few threads, the threads that you listed, and then I will center it around the people of the Congo. The first challenge that Congolese people face is their own internal challenge of the Congolese elite, the Compradores. Uh, These elites taking power through governments, all the means, and serving as the neocolonial agent within the Congo that will allow some of the exploitation. So Congolese on a daily basis are fighting their local elite. So the local elite is the first challenge. The second challenge is, while Congolese are fighting the local elite, two of its neighbors, Rwanda and Uganda, they have invaded the Congo in 96 and 98, and continue to support proxy rebel militias. Why? In the eastern part of Congo, in the area where Rwanda and Uganda have operated for the past two decades, there is vast land and resources and they illicitly exploit these resources, displace communities in masses, and then sell it to the international market. So, for example, if you do any search, you will notice that Rwanda is among the top exporters of a mineral called coltan. Rwanda does not have the reserve nor the deposit to the tons of the tons that they are selling at the international, in the international market. Yet, people will buy coltan from them. People will buy gold, for example, from uh, Uganda, knowing that they don't have these reserves, right? So, and then there have been numerous UN reports that have documented what Rwanda and Uganda have done in the invasions, in the killing, in displacement of population, and the illicit trade of mineral resources in the Congo. So, the second thread is neighboring countries, Rwanda and Uganda specifically. The third challenge of the Congolese, right? So thinking about the circle, so we're still going through that circle. The Congolese are still there. They're dealing with the local elite. Mm-hmm. They have challenged neighboring countries around and Uganda. And the third one is foreign governments. And I'll be specific on that one. The foreign governments the Congolese people have to deal with is the United States and the United Kingdom. Why the United States and the United Kingdom? Is because these two nations support, equip, train the Rwandan and the Ugandan militaries. So when we see these Rwandan soldiers and Ugandan soldiers and their practice in the Congo, displacing population, killing population with sophisticated weapons, right? I'll use the example of the M-23 rebel, for example, which has been documented to be supported directly by the uh, Rwandan uh, military. That uh, Antonio Guterres, the U.S. Secretary General, in an interview with France 24, He says in the interview that the UN forces are inadequate to stop the M23, and he adds, because they have sophisticated weapons. So the M23 rebels have night vision goggles, some rockets and missiles that reaches far far than before. So if the UN Secretary General can say that these rebels have sophisticated weapons, and you look at the weapon cache, uh, ammunition cache, is quite sophisticated. They are getting it from the Rwandan military, and this Rwanda military is funded by U.S. taxpayers' money and, U- and the United Kingdom. Not only that, the United Kingdom has been is trying to fund a refugee resettlement program, if I should call it that, taking um, yeah,
1: migrants the, from the U.K.
0: Yes, in the U.K. to move them to the to Rwanda, right? Yeah. To over, over 150 million euros or pounds i guess so when you see that the united states and the united kingdom are supporting financially nations destabilizing the congo and that has a direct impact to the livelihood of congolese so we have now three right local elite mm-hmm. neighboring countries and foreign government the fourth one is the multilateral institutions in this case I will point to the World Bank and IMF. The World Bank and IMF have written the mining laws of the Congo. Right now, it's been revised. But before the revision, that law was written by the World Bank, including also the forestry laws, which has allowed for multinational corporations to be able to access resources in shady deals and pretending to be transparent by saying, let's disclose this contract and so on. So these multilateral institutions, such as the World Bank and IMF, I could even co- uh, include the United Nations, the inadequacy of the UN to even hold nations destabilizing the Congo accountable. These institutions have also played the role of destabilizing the Congo. So we want local government, neighboring countries, foreign government, multilateral institutions. The next one, are multinational corporations. We have corporations such as Glencore getting access to cobalt, a penny on a dollar. You know There have been documentation of the exploitation of Glencore specifically around paying royalties to Dan Gottler, the Israeli businessman who has crewed the Congo for over two decades, where he will get mining concessions from the Congo, from Congolese officials, of course. And he does not have any experience in mining anything. He just takes a piece of paper showing that he owns XYZ land, which has copper or cobalt. Take it to the London Stock Exchange. And this uh, mine is valued at millions of dollars. So he resells the mining concession to be Glencore and others and then, of course, take some of the money and give cuts to Congolese officials, right? And then Gottler's uh, practice was exposed by the Justice Department in the United States uh, because there were investors who sued a U.S. hedge fund, right? And they exposed that there was some type of shady deal by this U.S. hedge fund called Harkshift. And Harkshift, in the lawsuit brought against them by the Justice Department, you can read the judgment and you see the appendix where Dan Gertler is bragging about having control of the Congolese government, where they even list right, after text messages and requests from Dan Gertler to make illegal payment, which we call briber, bribes to Congolese officials. They literally are listing in the table, up to twenty million dollars, right? It's one of the payments. It's not all the payments. Up to twenty million dollars of money sent from Hack Shift, the hedge fund in the U.S., right, right on Wall Street, to the accounts of two of three people: two Congolese official and then Gertler, right. Money sent to the president of the Congo, Joseph Kabila, and money sent to Augustin Katumba Mwanke, who is now deceased, was a, an advisor to the president of the Congo. So when you see that, you have hedge funds, right? The financial sector, you have multinationals uh, implicated, getting shady deals, and Glencore got access to that mine that uh, Dan Gertler had, continues to pay royalties to him while he's under so-called U.S. sanctions. So multinational corporations, so many of them to list. Uh, Freeport, mcmoran is one of them, AVX is another. And in um, 2002, the UN published a report on the illicit trade of minerals in the OC and listed 85 international companies, many of them U.S. or with U.S. investors, yet their home countries did not hold them accountable. So the fifth challenge now is the multinational corporation. The sixth one, I would say is the NGO industry, the charity sector, right? And the reason why i to bring that up is I've often said that Congo does not need charity. Congo needs justice. It's because when we hear the narrative of the Congo, we get lost. We, people are saying millions of people are dead. Hundreds of thousands of women have been brutally raped, but yet they dare say who's killing them in a succinct way and why are they being killed. And then after they make this speech, then these NGOs say, please donate to us. And we found that too, for example, (laughs) right? This is public information, right? That CARE, which is an NGO, right? An international NGO, while advocating for support of communities on the ground, was also receiving money from Banro, the Canadian mining company listed in numerous UN reports for the pilfering of Congo's resources. So the companies looting for this corporate social responsibility are funding the NGOs doing work in the Congo. So when you look at the six forces against the Congo, right, local elite, neighboring countries, foreign government, multilateral institutions, multinational corporations, and the charity uh, machine, the NGO machine. Think about them as tentacles holding the Congolese hostage to determine their affair. While the Congolese are trying to go vote, right, which they did on December 20th, what happened yesterday, on the 23rd? Two cities are no longer under Congolese control because the M23 rebel decided to launch an attack against two cities. But Congolese are discussing the elections, right? The electoral challenges. But rebels are also implicated. So how can they free themselves from the six tentacles keeping them hostage? They can free themselves only with solidarity, international solidarity, because the Congolese will deal with their internal challenges. But what makes it hard is that the external factors make it very hard for them to free themselves from these challenges. So that's really how I break down thank you so much
1: no that was thank you so much for that elaborate breakdown of what's happening and pulling out all these threads and how they're connected and i think what you've demonstrated for me is people often like to take a simple reductive stance and say it's just about the cobalt and whilst we understand mineral resource extraction in terms of u.s imperialism western imperialism plays a part I think it's a bit reductive to say it's just about the cobalt. In speaking about the people who have been killed, though, do you mind responding to or perhaps helping us understand, are these deaths a result of people refusing to work, for example, to mine? Are they a result of people being forci- forcibly displaced? Or what are some of the contributing factors that contribute to such a massive death toll?
0: The death toll that I referenced when I say uh, 6 million, right, I referenced the IRSC report the DNA mortality study, in 2008, if I'm not mistaken, that's when it was released, 2008 or 2009. The mortality study, they documented specifically the killings, right, and the deaths in the eastern part of the right? What they stated in the mortality study is that 5.4 million Congolese have died in the conflict in the east, either directly from direct conflict or indirect. Due to the displacement of them uh, being in refugee camps or in a forest somewhere, the direct and indirect result of the conflict caused their deaths. And estimated that 45,000 people die every month and 1,500 people die every day in DRC. So, and the study focused from 1998 to 2007, right? So that's what has been referenced by you know, most people, right? that 5.4 million Congolese have died during that period. Mm-hmm. But we know that the conflict has gone beyond that, right? And, and this conflict I'm speaking specifically about is the destabilization effort of Congo's neighbors, Rwanda, Uganda, in the eastern part of the RC, where they have boots on the ground and proxy rebel militias going and killing. And just as I mentioned a day ago, the M23 Rwanda bike rebels have taken over two towns again, right? And... People get killed, people get buried alive, people get raped, and it's so horrific. So that's that level. And those numbers, I always have argued that we will never know. I know it's probably over 10 million, but no one has done the mortality study since IRC to actually document from 2007 to present how many people are saying. And that's why I often don't use the number 10 million, because it could be 20 million. Right. If we're using the same rate of forty-five thousand, it could be that more than forty-five thousand are dying. Right. So it's to remind people even that no one is doing the mortality study on the DRC around the direct and direct death of Congolese due to this conflict. And unfortunately, as I say, you no, know, it will be very hard to know. There are other deaths happening. Right. That's not happening in conflict. That's happening due to the conditions of. How people are living, right? And those numbers, even it's not even documented, right? You know, in the Kasai region, about Kasai is in the center of the Congo, there were massacres taking place there, and the UN group of experts, two of them, were killed while they were investigating the situation there. I'm speaking about Michael Sharp and Zaida Catalan, and in after their death, the report that was released after their deaths documented that there were over 100 mass graves in the area they were actually looking at. That's not in the Eastern part of That This is in the center. And most wow. people don't even talk about the Kasai region and the massacre of Bududia Congo, where over 100 mass graves were found, and people have just moved on. People don't talk about the displacement of the people of the Kasai all the way where people fled to the Katanga province, fled to Angola fled to Zambia, where the World Food Program published a report saying that two million people are in the brink of starvation. Do we know what happened to these people who are being starved? Wow. We don't know, right? So the Congo become... That's why you know, we still insist on the world's silent genocide, is that they are killing Congolese slowly, and they're hoping that the world will not know what is happening, because there's many dynamics taking place, but when you simplify it, you say, huh, what is actually happening is that you have human beings who live on a land that's so rich. Right? Congo is so big, it's the size of Western Europe. It's so, uh, usually, compared to the size of ECOWAS, right? Mm-hmm. And then this land has human beings who are the beneficiary of the wealth of the land. And since King Lopo came, I could even argue since the Portuguese came, well, with this Paduado deal, although in the 1400s, the people of that land have not been able to control it. And they've been killed. And when they kill, the narrative is given about why they kill. And there is character assassination on them about the inadequacy of these people to even choose their own leaders. Look at these Africans. They can't even figure it out. When, in the end, you notice it's not even like a possibility for them to choose the leader because of how it's set up. But in all the narrative, what never stops in the Congo is the continuous flow of Congolese minerals. The deaths continue, the minerals live. But it's not connected in a clear way, right? Because it's like, okay, there are some that's going illicitly, there are some implied, right? Connect that's leaving the Congo legally through multinationals, but through odious deals, odious contracts. That should be a challenge. You know, I've always screamed that when I read the the contract that the American company Freeport McMurray had, right? Freeport is U.S., London is uh, Canada. They had a mining deal where they were getting 80% of the um, stake in the project, and Congo was getting 20%. And Hillary Clinton flew to the Congo before her, Johnny Carson flew to the Congo. But the discussions of the U.S. stopping the renegotiation of the port deal is not mentioned. What's mentioned about Hillary Clinton's visit to the Congo is that a, a student at the University of Kinshasa asked her about what her husband thinks. And she got angry. Oh, do you want me to tell you what my husband thinks? I'm the Secretary of State. He's not. That's what's reported in the media. But not... That the question the student asked. And the question the student asked was around the U.S. interference to the Chinese contract. So when you see all of that, in the end, I'm very clear that our challenges in the Congo is clearly that we are not able to determine what happened to our land, what happened to our gold, what happened to our oil, what happened to what we've been blessed with for the betterment of the people, and they are forces, obscure forces on the outside. I won't even say obscure because I've named them, right? There are these forces interfering on the outside to make sure that the minerals flow while the Congolese don't have control of the land.
1: Thank you so much once again. And given Congo's centrality in African history, in African politics, past and present, many of us who like to call ourselves Pan-Africanists or believe we ascribe to the doctrine of Pan-Africanism. What does a Pan-Africanist analysis of the current situation of Congo begin to sound like? How do we give a Pan-African account in terms of understanding what's happening and how we can we should be in support of it or what the solidarity look like from Pan-Africanist perspective?
0: It's the first acknowledge that even with uh, the, not the Pan-Africanism as an ideology, uh, but those today who or speaking about Pan-Africanism, have actually lost connection with the Congo. And I've been in many spaces where I speak to other Pan-Africanists to actually understand their analysis. We are in 2023. People are still quoting Patrice Lumumba. I appreciate that. I appreciate that we know the achievement of Patrice Lumumba. But we don't know contemporary Congo. But if we put that in context, we have a young man in Harlem, Malcolm X at the time the crisis in the Congo is taking place. He's talking about Moïse Chombe. He wasn't talking about Moïse Chombe 20 years or 30 years after Moïse Chombe existed, right? He was talking about Moïse Chombe when Moïse Chombe was doing the secession in Katanga. He said that Patrice Lumumba is the greatest man, black man who's ever walked the face of the earth. And he had that after the sentence. Why, right? He says, because he could not be bought. <coughs> But when he's making those statements, it's around the time Patrice Lumumba is existing. Oh, no, after his assassination and so on. But he's speaking about it in, like concrete, uh, at that time, right? Contemporary time of Malcolm X. Today, the Pan-African movement globally has forgotten that in 2023, we have Congolese who are fighting for their liberation. I'm not saying that we have to look for the next Patrice Lumumba. I'm saying that we should be very well versed about the situation in the Congo that when Kagame, President Paul Kagame, visit Benin and that a journalist in Benin asks him a question and that he reference, right, in the response to his question, because they ask him a question about the Congo, he referenced in his question about the Congo the Berlin Conference, right, and start hinting at that we need to revise the borders. That journalist should be able to know Contemporary Congo about the fallacy of his statements and be able to describe that the situation in the Congo as it pertains to Rwanda's invasion is not the Berlin Conference, right? And I'm and I'm gonna make an extreme comparison is the narrative of Netanyahu in Israel, right? That he wants the people to believe that Mm -hmm. the land of Palestine and the reality, we need to look at the Bible. I'm saying, no, you're not gonna lie to people. We know mm-hmm. what happened in 1948, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. If you make the argument that Israel and the Bible and everything else, which means that the Congolese today should say that Angola should be part of the Congo, Congo-Brazzaville should be part of the Congo, Gabon should be part of the Congo, and Cameroon, right, in terms of the nation-state. But that's not we, what we have said at the African Union, right? There is a reason why at the African Union I say let's, have a reset button and think about nation-state. Even if we agree with the reality of nation-state or not, but we build a unity. We should not split an African country. We should talk about a bigger conglomeration mm-hmm. of countries. So anyone who's talking about balkanizing a country that should already hints. So where are the Pan-Africanists in knowing contemporary Congo? The forces at play. You no, know, there are progressive forces. They may not be as sophisticated as we want them to be, right? They may not have the media presence that's necessary. Uh, They may not have the connections that's needed. But how did Malcolm X connect with the Congolese? He didn't have Twitter. He didn't have Facebook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he could talk at the Audubon Ballroom Mm -hmm. about what's happening in the Congo to the people of the Harlem. If you can understand what's happening in Mississippi and Alabama, you can understand uh, the situation in the Congo. So that's how... I worry about the Pan African movement that it it is stuck in 1960 in its analysis of the Congo, and it it assumes that nothing is happening, right? That no, there are not progressive forces. There are young people who have lost their lives fighting one of the most brutal regimes, and people don't even know about that. Lukulula, I uh, always bring up his name. This young man, the way he died—they locked him in his house and burned him alive who around the world is talking about Luka Lula? and you listen to what he was saying about his hope for Congo. Rossi Chimang, another the one who was organizing protest against the Kabila regime with a host of young people, right? But they knew that we didn't have political space. They learned from the Sudanese. They learned from Girifna. If you look at how Girifna in the early, uh, in the 2010 time, right? In Khartoum when there was no political space. They use culture, right? They will do like a play, this one-minute play. A group of people will come into a space, do a play for one minute, and then disappear because the state did not allow them to organize protest. The same thing happened to us. You could not organize protest. How did Congolese start organizing? They start organizing during football games. I have yet seen someone write a succinct article about, what the Congolese people did di- during the football games. Can you imagine that we will play in the African Cups of Champions, right? And the Congolese team will play very well and the stadium will be filled. As soon as the Congolese score, while the people are chanting, right? The Congolese are saying, "Kabila oye bela, eloko, lakate. I will translate that. They are chanting for a score by saying, Kabila, you should know that your presidential term has ended. Everything in the world has an end. How many people knew this was happening, right? People would celebrate the Congolese team mm-hmm. winning the African Cups or champion. I mean, it was so bad that we actually won the African Cup so champion, that the players, whenever they flew back into the country, right, that the state was so afraid that during the jubilation people will organize politically that they did not allow the team to have a celebration with the masses they landed at the airport they put them in the bus people were waiting in the streets the cars did, the the vans in which they were in went straight to the hotel they had the celebration think of it. the congo won the african cups of champion the team mm-hmm. celebrated That championship in their hotels to not connect with the people because the state noticed how Congolese will use any public spaces as possible to do that. And then we moved from the football games to the churches. People will literally go to the church. They're not even Catholic, they're not even even Christian. They will go to the church, and after the church service, the protests were starting from the church. That's how Roshi Chimanga was killed. Roshi Chimanga was one of the young people in one of the areas in Kinshasa where a protest was supposed to start from the church. When they were about to come out, the police was outside of the church and he came to protect the civilians and the police shot him inside of the church. Nobody knows this story. So those are the challenges that we face Mm -hmm. about telling the story of resistance of Congolese today to the Pan-African movement for people to not assume that we are just observing.
1: Exactly. No, exactly. Absolutely. In speaking about what is happening then, and I think it's always important to, to I I'm really appreciate that you brought us back to the point that, of course, there's forces on the ground organizing for the liberation. Oftentimes we have a mentality or we have portrayal of colonized people as solely as victims but never have agents of their own destiny. So in thinking about or talking about what's happening today in Congo, what are some of the movements taking place? What do they look like? What are their orientations? What are they speaking about? What are they calling to? The ones that are organizing for liberation of the Congo.
0: The one that's visible, of course, the, the Western press have picked up on two movements in the R.C. and Filimbi, for their own purposes. But there are more movements than just Lucien Filimbi. The way to really understand the youth movement in DRC or even the overall movement of people resisting the bourgeois politics and our compradors, is that the people of the Congo have understood very quickly that our leaders do not represent us and they use state institutions against us. The first time I saw the organizing on Congolese take place was in the 2011 elections, right? And the the way I saw it in 2011, I also saw it around 2006, is that Congolese quickly knew. I mean, unfortunately, people don't use BlackBerry as they used to. They noticed that when we were organizing protests, right, the government of the Congo had this habit of shutting off the internet. You know, if there is something going on, the Kabila regime will just shut off the internet. Then in 2011. I noticed that a lot of young people realized that the Congolese government did not have the capacity to stop BlackBerry Messenger. So, BlackBerry at the time became the organizing tool, right? And as I mentioned, unfortunately, BlackBerry, people don't use it then. But then, it was a saving grace, right? BBM messages were the one being used by young Congolese organizers at the time around the rigged election of 2011. Then, of course, in 2016, we saw the same. And, but the, I would say the, word, the culmination of the efforts that's very visible is what we call uh, the Telema movement. And the Telema movement does not have an owner. There is not someone who owns that movement, right? Telema is a term in Lingala. Telema means stand up, rise up. I reference that because in 2015, something insidious happened in the Congolese government. The Kabila regime was supposed to organize a presidential election in 2016. The reason being in 2011, five years later, there should be one. Every indication showed us that the Kabila regime was not ready to organize the presidential election. They were trying to delay election, change the constitution. And one of the things that they actually introduce as a tactic to delay election was this process of uh, census. They said, right, and they actually introduced a bill in our National Assembly. They said that before we do presidential election in 2016, we must organize a national census. And because we'll do the national census, we'll have to extend a little bit the years when the presidential election will take place. Congo is the country the size of Western Europe. Uh, We have challenges around infrastructure connecting the whole country well. So it was clear that this bill was to delay presidential election. When uh, it was introduced, it was passed in the National Assembly, right? And I'll tell you when it was passed. It was passed on January 17th, 2015. January 17th, 2015 was a Saturday. January 17th, 2015 is a public holiday. Is an official public holiday because it's the anniversary of the death of Patrice Lumumba. So members of parliament, of of our National Assembly, decided to go to the National Assembly on a Saturday, on a public holiday, to pass this bill, which after the vote moved to the Senate. And when that took place, one of the opposition leaders decided to make a call to the population and let the people know, this happened. We cannot... Let that just happen, right? The people of the Congo have the duty to do something about what is unfolding. On January 19th, the Monday, the Congolese people took it to the street. They went to Palais du Peuple, which is the building, is our Capitol Hill, if I have to make the U.S. comparison. It's where the National Assembly is. The population at 8 a.m. woke up and they decided to go to the building where the National Assembly is, I mean, the parliament, right, is to protest. And on their way there, no politicians was available. They all disappeared. They made the call for the protest. They were nowhere to be found. But the students at the University of Kinshasa that day, as they saw how the politicians betrayed, they took the lead of that protest. And all the youth joined. We saw For the first time, right, for two weeks, right, the internet in the Congo was cut off. That we saw how, from the the organizing effort of the Youth for the Congo, right, that a hashtag was created called Telema to share information about what was happening on the ground. People figure out how to connect to VPNs and sharing information. And there was a collaboration between the Congolese diaspora and the Congolese youth on the ground. And the youth of the Congo, particularly in Kinshasa, because, I mean, it took place across the Congo in a few cities, Kisangani, Lubumbashi, Goma, and so on. But the Kinshasa was the, the main point that's where the seat of government is. In that protest, the, the youth, they were able to shut down a city of 15 million people for two weeks. These young wow. people, in January of 2015, shut down the city of Kinshasa the internet was cut off, didn't know what to do. And it was so bad, right? Because it was a contention between the people, mostly young, and the police and the military. They were killing young people. They were shooting at them. It was so bad, even Human Rights Watch published the report that they were, they were, the military will literally go to the hospital to steal the dead bodies. Human Rights Watch actually documented that. Why? Oh, to, to decrease the number of deaths that were being reported, right? But beyond that, something happened. I've, you know, I've At that time, I was in the diaspora as well. I have never, before 2015, watched a Senate debate in the Congo on livestream. Even today, it doesn't exist. You can go online and say you are watching the Senate debate. Two weeks after, since the bill moved to the Senate, every single day, Senators were debating in the Congolese parliament, right? The bill, it was live stream. So, what was the live stream? It was live stream for the diaspora, not the people in the Congo. There was no internet in the Congo. So if there is no internet in the Congo and they are live streaming the Senate debate, it's so that the diaspora is aware that they are trying to resolve an issue. And the debates were interesting. Most of the senators were saying, we don't, we cannot pass this bill. Wow, don't you see what's happening? They know our houses. The people have already spoken. And surprisingly, mm-hmm. the day of the vote for that bill, the Senate voted against the bill. And I still remember the president of the Senate, what he said, right? He actually spoke in Lingala. He didn't speak in English uh, or, or French, actually. He did not speak in French. He spoke in a local language. Right. After they did the vote and did not pass, he says, the guy spoke in local language to tell the Congolese people on video, live stream, when there is no internet in the country, that we did not vote for this bill, right? Due to the voice of the people. That was the beginning of the Telema movement. There hmm. is no political party that can take credit for that. There is no one youth movement that can take credit for that. Is the youth of the Congo as one who decided to actually come together and stop our local compadors. But they paid a heavy price. Mm-hmm. You know the price that they pay? In March mm-hmm. of 2015, I think March or April, Human Rights Watch reports that they discover a mass grave in Maluku, in the outskirts of Kinshasa. And this mass grave found There were 400 bodies, and they are calling on the United Nations and the Congolese government to investigate this. This is the response of the Congolese government that the bodies in this mass grave are bodies of people who died in hospitals that their families have never come to collect. So they went to the morgues and said, "Nobody coming to collect these bodies? Let's just get rid of them." And it's also bodies. Of fetuses. We know, I know with every fiber in my body that those 400 bodies are the bodies of the young Congolese who rose up in the Telema uprising. And up until today, no one has been held to account for killing young Congolese, exercising the constitutional right to challenge the government, introducing a bill that was going to extend the presidential term illegally of uh Kabila. But beyond 2015, the Congolese youth have been engaged. You know, Mesha Lukulula, with Chimanga, and so on and so forth. Congolese have put pressure on the Kabila regime, which refused to leave power. Right? The reason why Kabila is not power beyond the deals and everything else is because there was a mass mobilization of the youth for the Congo throughout the country to stop that machine. Unfortunately, in the end, um, there was a deal between Kabila and the current president of the Congo, uh, which was not what the Congolese people did. But I I share all of this to say movements are happening. And my challenge is always to name one movement. Because when you start naming one movement, people say, well, this is the movement to connect with. But I'll say, just as it was in, with, in the, uh, with independence, the movement of the Congo are fluid, right? Yeah. And youth, as I always argue, youth is not a class. Only exactly. <laughs> time will show you where people fall. Exactly. The fundamental support to give the people of the Congo is to support their action and lifting up their stories and uh, shy away, in my view, in naming people and I, I know some of these youth leaders i know some of these uh, youth organizations but i want a coalition it's like um in the case uh, i'm sorry i keep making the case of palestine because that's what is present to the people right of course no people do not know the movements fighting for liberation the only reference is Hamas. exactly but there are vibrant movement in palestine fighting for the liberation of palestine and what we are doing is providing the support to the Palestinians, right, for their liberation uh, without knowing uh, not every single organization because what he also does on the ground, uh, sometimes it causes internal contradictions. Exactly. Right. You know, an organization will say, well, w- we are doing the work. Nobody talk about us. How come you know, every single international press only speak about two youth movements? when those who actually are bear the brand is ma- much more, uh, much more youth. So that that's my long-winded response in uh, trying to name uh, organization, is saying that the people of the Congo have a vibrant movement. They've been organizing on the ground. Some have resources, most do not have resources. But our goal on the outside is to connect organically with this movement that, that uh, this movement that share our values, right? And for me, the values that I look for is I look for movements in DRC who are not just nationalists. Mm-hmm. Because I, I'm only sharing with young Congolese that I work with. And my fear is that we start thinking that we are the only one being oppressed. You no, know, Western Sahara is not free. They're still colonized. So we should also be aware of what's happening there. So I start thinking, uh, I'm not thinking, I'm, I start engaging them from a process where I want them to think bigger than just the Congo as a nation, think about the African continent and the diaspora and also all the oppressed people of the world beyond just the Congo.
1: Thank you so much. And I guess finally then, in the spirit of keeping things current and contemporary and rooting our analysis of the Congo in the present, briefly, the elections. What's the stakes right now who are some of the front runners? What are their, I guess, orientation? And yeah, what are the stakes right now for this election?
0: The stake for this election was to really break with the, the nepotism, with the exploitation of the the use of state institutions for personal benefits by those in power. That's what the people were worrying about as one of the issues. The second one was about peace and security, right? The president of the Congo, the incumbent president of the Congo promised peace uh, to the Congolese people. Five years later, we still don't have peace. And then it was planned for us to have a presidential election with three other elections taking place at the same time. So we had a general election with four elections running parallel, okay? And uh, in those elections, it was scheduled to take place on December 20th. I can confidently say that on December 20th, 2023, there was no elections in the ERC. Um th- I think some of the international press and others, even I have said the word chaotic, right? I think when I'm saying it's chaotic, people don't really understand what really took place for this election. So let's talk about the, for the presidential elections, the contenders. We had 26 presidential candidates. On election day, the number dropped to 19. And the four top contenders are the incumbent president, Felix Shisekedi, Martin Fayulu. He is a member of parliament and also an opposition leader. He actually won the last presidential election. But of course, for those who look much more in detail what took place in 2018, they will note that there was another re-election again in 2018. We have uh, Dr. Denny Mukwege, who's a medical doctor, who runs the hospital, the Panzi Hospital, in the eastern part of Congo. He's a gynecologist, and his work has been to really bring some um, form of, um, I don't know how to even explain it, right? The, the conflict in the Congo, the women of the Congo have faced the brunt of that conflict, and the militia groups have used rape as a weapon of war and i think even saying rape is an understatement to what they are doing uh, because i don't know how to describe a using the ak47 to destroy the reproductive part of the woman as rape i think it's beyond rape right and no even not taking a knife and machine to destroy that it's literally they are destroying the womb of the women and when you a woman cannot have a baby anymore and you have hundreds of thousands of women who cannot have babies anymore because they destroyed it in horrific ways, the reproductive part, the population in the area will decrease. That's just the, the, the logic of that, right? But through these rapes, the many women suffer a condition called fistula. And Dr. Mukwege, as a gynecologist, has been able to do fistula repairs where he literally saw back women been uh, raped. He won a Nobel Peace Prize for it, for his work. And when you listen to his um, acceptance speech uh, for the Nobel Peace Prize, he points to a few things. Uh, One being, thank you for giving me the Nobel Peace Prize, but Congo needs justice and Congo needs peace. And justice is not negotiable. He actually said that in his uh, speech. So he decided to run for office. Uh, for presidency. So he's among the three. And the last one will be Moise Katumbi. Most Africans know his football team. He owns a football team called Tepe Mazembe. It's a great football team. You know, as I say, many Africans know them because they've won quite a few championships here and there. And some of the players have been you know, sold back and forth, uh, Europe and uh, across Africa. And he's a former governor of the province of Katanga, the East Congo. Katanga is the province that has most of the cobalt and copper. And then uh, beyond uh, that, as a governor, he was able to use state institution to enrich himself. You know, that's how he became a billionaire. He's actually a billionaire. So, so wealthy, using state institution, he has mining assets, he has mining concession that he even sold also to the Glencore of the world and so on. He has private jets. So he's a very wealthy candidate. Among the four, it's really up to the Congolese to choose, you know, what I can gauge that the people right now, based on the conditions in the Congo, are ready for something new because they've seen what Shisekedi has done already for the past five years. But unfortunately, for the elections, we, we did not have an election. One-third of the polling station. We had 75,000 polling stations in the Congo. One-third of the polling stations were not open on election day. And three days after elections, right, literally December 23rd, the election was on December 20th. On December 23rd, people were still voting, and that was illegal, right? According to our constitution and the electoral law, it's illegal for that to take place. But what were they voting three days later? Because polling stations were not open, and the head of the electoral commission decided against the law, un- unilaterally, to keep polling stations open when there are no witnesses. So we don't know what happened in these polling stations. There were reports of uh, places right where they opened at 3 p.m. People were supposed to vote from 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. At 3 p.m., some of the police polling station opened. So many people went to the polls and in the end, they just left. There have been videos already circulating, confirmed videos, of people with voting machines in their homes, voting. There have been reports by the uh, one of the uh, electoral observers, a credible electoral observer called Senko. It's a coalition of religious leaders in DRC. And they have the largest observer mission in the Congo right now. They have 25,000 observers in 25, no, in at least 20,000 polling stations in DRC. So their report has been the most credible one, documenting that some of the polling stations were in military camps, some of them were in political parties or headquarters, and they've already called out the credibility of the elections. About now, five presidential candidates initially called for a rerun of the elections. About four more have added. So we have close to 10 presidential candidates out of the 26 calling for a rerun of the elections. And this election costed the Congo $1.2 billion. And I didn't even talk about any other issues that took place before the elections where uh, voter registration cards that was given to people, their face disappeared from it. The names disappear from it. And the Electoral Commission said, well, you could come on election day and we'll pull out your information. You'll still be able to vote. And guess what happened? People went to vote and found out that someone has voted for them. And they can't prove anything, right? I said, well, it wasn't me. I said, well, someone came here with your information and voted already. So saying that there was an election is really not what happened. Calling it chaotic, I think... It's also being nice to the regime. Unfortunately, what we, we are witnessing right now is that the current regime of Chisekedi plan to rig the elections. And because one one thing positive I can say about this presidential election, right, that I can say very confidently is that the people of the Congo went to the polls and there were no electoral violence because many people assumed that there will be chaos. No, People did not right? engaging that. So you had millions of people who went to the polls and are now disappointed that people wasted their time once again. And this mm-hmm. opens the doors of what we have seen in West Africa, when we're talking about what's happening in Mali, in Nigeria, in Burkina Faso. When you listen to the people who led the military coups, they always hint at the electoral process, right? Of how these leaders in the electoral process took state institutions for granted for personal benefits. I mean, even lately with Gabon, even if we call it a palace coup, when you listen to the statement of the coup leaders, they are hinting at what Ali Bongo did in the elections, right? And the something is happening in DRC. So when it happens and then a few weeks from now, you know, God forbid, something drastic such as people checking out of the democratic process through a coup or other means happen, the first thing the so-called international community is going to call for is, well, Congo cannot be part of the African Union because we have coup leaders. There will be all these different sanctions. But right now, no one is sanctioning the regime for rigging the election. But the actions of the people, if and when it occurs to sanction the state, Will be seen as a negative action from the people. So that's where we are in the Congo as we analyze the presidential election. And as I mentioned, unfortunately, on December twenty third, the M twenty three Randonback militia group sort of restarted this attack on the Congolese soil, and have taken over two new town in the eastern part of the Congo in the midst of us discussing the elections.
1: Thank you so much. We're coming to the end of time now. But I can only say, please, people, Kambali is on social media. I highly recommend following him. I highly recommend engaging with this, the things that he shares to keep up, keep up to date. I will also be trying to get involved in how we can support what's happening in Congo. So watch out for that and I'll post about that soon. Thank you and peace out.